The average person spends hours a week at the grocery store, but you're not an average person, are you? There's a better way to get fresh groceries, and it's called Fresh Direct. Shop for just-picked fruit and vegetables, custom-cut meat and seafood, freshly made meals and meal kits, all your favorite brands, plus hundreds of weekly deals. Order Fresh Direct anytime, anywhere, and get the freshest groceries delivered to your door. Use code PLAYLIST to get $25 off your first order of $99 or more. Visit FreshDirect.com or download the app today. I had with Professor Fred Bauman, who teaches political science at Kenyon College, about an article he wrote entitled Liberal Education and Liberal Democracy, most recently published in the 2015 book entitled The Future of Liberal Education, edited by Timothy W. Burns and Peter Augustine Lawler. It is available on Amazon.com and linked in the profile. See, Mr. Bauman, you you teach at uh, Kenyon College at, as a political science professor. Uh, what what are you currently teaching? Uh, what, what are your current classes, or the, the ones that you just finished? Uh, I just finished teaching a couple sections of the freshman class, um, the Quest for Justice, which is a year class where the conversation for freshmen, um, where the conversation about justice and human nature, and those are two sides of the same coin because. Justice can only apply properly to a particular kind of being. You don't try to turn a tiger into a vegan. And we try to run that conversation from the pre-philosophic beginnings um, to pretty much the present day. I know that a lot of students came out of your first-year class, wanting, at least in my year, they wanting to uh, wanted to be a political science major. So I think well, you... it's it's <laughs> where we recruit. And of course, there are a lot of us teaching it, and we try to make we try to show people that political science isn't just how a bill becomes a law and it's not just social science regression analysis stuff, but underneath it are the big, big questions that every college student wants to face. Many of them do. They want to face it one way or another in in order to get a liberal education. Right. So at the center of liberal education is sort of this uh, discipline here uh, that you teach. Well, Um, you can get at it. through a lot of doors. You can get at it through philosophy, through history, sociology, but religion, but yeah, that's, ours is one of the doors into it. So yeah, we want to talk about your article here, Liberal Education and Liberal Democracy. So why don't you just give a short uh, uh, synopsis of it? Well, I mean, the, the central point was this. I was asked to write something on the subject, and I was thinking about something that had happened in my Quest class, my freshman class, the previous year, um, which is that I had always assumed that Americans, just gut level, think naively, intuitively, the law should be the same for everyone, what goes around comes around, it's not fair otherwise. And I discovered to my shock that Americans had become more like Europeans, my students had, by which I mean they no longer thought that that was self-evidently true. In fact, they doubted it. Um, The critique that you get from kind of pragmatists and also from Marxists, a very powerful critique, which says equal rights, come on, that's just a mask for differential results. It's it's an ideology, a rationalization for power. Uh, That had 
apparently somehow or another got to them and they believed it. So I got questions like, uh, well, um, you say that uh, uh, the, the Federalist says that justice is the purpose of government, but how can we have justice if we have all these checks and balances that keep us from doing it? And there was a much older and simpler understanding of what politics was like. It's not about rules and fair play. It's about good people making bad people do the right thing so that we can all be really equal, which they assume is justice. So another student asked, why does the Ku Klux Klan have the right of free speech or the right of um, assembly? They're bad. It was very easy to teach those students saying, well, what if they said that to you? You're bad, and therefore you don't have a right of free speech. Oh, ha. But this (laughs) is stuff I assumed that every American kid would pick up in middle school, if if not earlier, and it was just not there. And I thought, wow. And I went to Aristotle, the book two, where he talks about it in a much more general way, uh, book two of the politics, and he says, Uh, reciprocity is what saves cities. And that's very obscure. He doesn't really explain it much. He refers you to the ethics where they start talking about price theory. Um, But what he means, I think, is that there have to be some rules that people by and large agree to whereby they are both the same and different. The fundamental political problem is we have to be a community, we have to be together, and yet we're not identical. We're not social animals like ants and bees, yeah? Where everybody, at least in one caste, has his role and does it. A drone is a drone, a queen is a queen, and so forth. Um, So how do you do that? How do you have sameness and difference together? How do you put together oneness and manifoldness? And... One way of thinking about it is that there are rules that are essentially agreed on and do not produce straight equality, that the sergeant is in a different position than the private, but the private isn't chopped liver either. He's not the slave. And he recognizes that, and he says, maybe someday I'll be a sergeant. Um, That's what modern political science would call legitimacy, But modern political science treats legitimacy as anything anybody agrees to. Aristotle means something more substantive, I think. He means something that isn't just agreed on, but really is in some way inclusive and fair, even though it doesn't lead to exact equality. And from that point of view, you can look at the American system, the liberal democratic system, as a particular example of a reciprocal arrangement. Yeah, and it's summed up by equal rights, unequal results. And when that no longer is legitimate, when people say, oh, come on, those equal rights don't count because they produce unequal results, you then have lost the principle of reciprocity. What you then have is people who call themselves good and other people whom they call bad but call themselves good in effect in a kind of civil war with each other which may become violent or may not it may involve body slamming it may not it could get worse and that's why i wrote this as far as liberal education and liberal democracy 
it seemed to me that both liberal education and liberal democracy are threatened by the Civil War model of thinking. Basically, you know, Ring Lardner, shut up, he explained. We're right, you're wrong, shut up. Liberal education lives by a kind of suspension of politics for the sake of thinking about questions and is interested in questions more than answers. Whereas liberal democracy is political, but it also suspends to a certain extent by these rules the full expression of ideological or religious combat. And so there's a common interest, I think, in reciprocity in liberal education and liberal democracy. Yeah, and this this uh, concept of reciprocity um, in, in in the American context, um, I guess it's just the inalienable rights that everybody enjoys. Yeah, it's pretty much. But it's not just the no. The inalienable rights are natural rights. You tr- you trade some of them in for civil and political rights. So civil rights, political rights, right to vote, the right of due process of law, equal treatment before the law, um, right to property. However, civil property, which can be taxed by the government and so forth, um, the right to have a government that's representative, where you vote, the right to vote, all of that are the products of those inalienable natural rights. And, yeah, that's what you get. You get citizenship, and you get what we traditionally thought of as freedom, but a freedom that's limited by the freedom of others and all of that. And there's always a critique that, like you were saying, that because of the unequal results that we're not actually there and that it's a fig leaf and it's right. it's some That's kind right. of fantasy that we're living in that actually that the, right. that we have these rights, but we do, and you're saying that they it, exist. Yeah, I mean, Anatole France, who's a um, socialist, put it beautifully. The law in its majesty forbids both rich and poor alike from sleeping under the bridges at night or stealing their food. You know, okay, and what France is saying is it's all very well for the rich. They don't have to sleep under the bridge. But this law, in all its apparent neutrality, is actually discriminatory against the poor. So, you know, all of this stuff is, right? Um, That's the big discovery. You unmask. In the 60s, they used to spell America with a K in order to unmask it for, you know, showing people that all these rights they had were, were really baloney. And that really um, you need, and our word for it today is social justice, not just political justice, but social justice, which means equality of result. Well, I, I would think that uh, social justice warriors, as they're called, would would disagree. I mean, I think that they would you think say, so? I think they would say that it's it's we want um, equality of opportunity. Well. Uh, depends which which ones you're talking about. But of course, what is it? What is opportunity? And what they will then say is, quite reasonably, uh, how can you talk about equal opportunity for the son of a Rockefeller and uh, the the daughter of a, a poor inner city person? And in order to make opportunity really equal, you then have to change social conditions and all the rest of it. So it comes down to, you may say opportunity, but what they mean by opportunity is reality, is okay. results. So, so when, we, when we, uh, we hear the critique from the other side, we, we need to resist this uh, move towards trying to get to this equality of result 
because in and of itself it, it requires, as as you uh, pointed out, it requires this all, kind of all-knowing leader to to dole out. If, well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate logic of it, is King Solomon, who knows what everybody deserves and gives them to. Uh, in reality, what you would get is a party, a ruling party, mm-hmm. or just a, a elitist meritocratic bureaucracy, uh, which would decide these things, because there would be no way for the people themselves to work out the results, because that would depend on relative power and relative capacity to persuade, to spin. Um, It wouldn't be reliable. It wouldn't be fair. And if you want substantive fairness, you have to have a scientific or a divine Knowledge and that that would be how you would work it out. Yeah. So this this is the best we can get. Then is this reciprocal relationship that, um, and, and and this is what I wanted to ask you about is w- this idea of reciprocity. I mean, we see Aristotle expressing it, and and yeah. But it, it seems like not the norm, at least among the the societies we've studied. You know, time no. immemorial. It's, it's, this no. is a new thing here. No, it's not. It's a very old thing, but it's also a very rare thing. It's so hard. Yeah, the simplest solution is let's fight about it, and then you have a dictator, a conqueror, a tyrant. Liberal democracy has very peculiar and relatively recent historical origins, um, and. You can find, but but by the way, you can find other modes of reciprocity. Aristotle wasn't thinking about liberal democracy at all. Uh, He was thinking about a polis, and he was thinking about a mixed regime, maybe, a polity that has oligarchic and and democratic elements. Um, There are a number of ways to do it, but it's always very hard because it requires people in a certain way to, to do something unnatural, which is to split themselves, you know, to care about their own good and not simply to identify it with the public good. Uh, Rousseau talks about um, the general will, and Rousseau's a predecessor of Marx. Rousseau wants it all or nothing. He wants people to be, uh, theoretically at least, completely communal. And he, ha- and he has to have a small community which is ruled, uh, essentially founded by a godlike legislator. The line that Marx uses about how we need to change human nature goes back to Rousseau, ultimately. You have to give people a second nature. Um, well, it's a trying huge to project. If you can't do that, you then have to balance. You have to split people so they're partly public and partly private and get them to agree to that, and that's very hard. Well, it's essentially a relationship that is not uh let's see it requires a certain amount of free thought uh yeah. and it's not something that can be arrived at um through kind of rote and this is no. this kind of gets to the idea of yeah. liberal education because it's something that you have to develop yeah the thing is that you know where aristotle wanted virtue people who could control themselves, control their desires, and therefore become more public-spirited. But that, in turn, required an aristocracy, and that required leisure, and probably required slaves. Uh, The modern version of it, you know, from John Locke, says, A, we've got an ace in the hole, and that is the love of property. So if you let people go and make money, yeah, the GNP will increase, we'll have a hell of an army, 
high, to high military technology, and basically will be able to live and let live because the deepest desire is just to be left alone and to have a good private life. And in that case, um, we don't need virtue and we don't need liberal education all that much. Yeah, it's property. And that you know, that's what we talk about as the American dream. That works very well. But the question is, and I think it's, um, you're right to raise it, whether ultimately that's enough, if only because you can get very big differences in property and you can turn those into, in effect, aristocratic classes, whether you don't need, in fact, liberal education to teach people something about the insolubility of all human pro- really big human problems, so that they can restrain themselves and be better citizens and be more tolerant and more moderate and more accepting of the views of others. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're right. Liberal education does serve a civic purpose and does support free government, which requires self-restraint and the acceptance of limits. And you say that it's essentially a moderating force. Can you talk about that? Why is it that liberal education... Is, well, in, in I mean, the old sense, it's so moderating. And, and well, okay. I mean, I, I it might not be. I mean, we all know from all the movies, uh, you know, the Nazi uh, who is you know highly cultivated and reads Kant and Schopenhauer and plays Beethoven on the piano and still gets shot in the last reel as he you know, richly deserves. Uh, sure, liberal education as it is practiced in certain times and places, not just the United States, uh, can, in fact, it's dangerous stuff. It can lead you to nihilism. It can, you know, Nietzsche and Heidegger, very hot stuff in uh, German universities in the early 20th century. So I'm not, I don't mean to say it's a cure-all, but I do think what it tends to do, if you learn to take the question seriously, if you learn to if you begin to figure out for instance politically that human beings are neither simply private beings which is what the libertarians come close to wanting or simply public beings which is what the marxists want but that there's always a conflict you tend to moderate your ambitions and for some people, that that's a horrible thing because it, it, it's the death of idealism and all the rest of it. It creates a kind of cynicism. It, I don't think it does, but it does always make you realize there's a price. And the price is a serious one, if not to you, then to other people. And so I tell my students, if there's a bias in this course, it is that the blanket is always too short. If it covers... The feet, it's not going to cover the shoulders and vice versa. So in that sense, liberal education seems to me, by showing you the depth and the complexity of the human situation and its problems, to make you a little more tolerant, a little more humane, a little less fanatical, and, and a, maybe a lot less. It's, I see that. And, and, and a great point you make also, something you sh- we should talk about here, is the difference between the traditional concept of liberal in this country and liberal education as as, as you're describing. Right. So That's right. Liberal education goes back to the Greeks. Liberal democracy is a fairly recent phenomenon. And the word liberal, of course, gets used to cover a multitude in this country, uh, especially when it you know, the word socialist wasn't, wasn't very popular, so people called themselves liberals. Liberal education, the word liberal there means free man. 
It probably means male. Yeah? It means an education in things that a citizen needs to be able to understand. And why is that? What's the difference between what a, what a free man and what a slave needs to know? Slave can be, you know, technically tremendously proficient. A slave can do rocket science, right? I mean, there's the old Tom Lehrer song about Werner von Braun, who in effect would build rockets for anybody. And so the line is, once the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Well, a liberally educated person, the citizen, it is his or, for us, her as well, department to decide about where they come down and if they even should be shot in the first place or if we even should have them. Right. You know? So that's an education not in technical things, in learning how to perform under clearly set conditions, but it's, a, it's an education about what to do when you don't know. Yeah? Which is to say nothing really solid there. How to think. Well, how to think intelligently, usefully, prudently, with some sympathy, with some understanding. Yeah? Um, it's, you know, rocket science, technical stuff is also thinking, but it's a peculiar kind of thinking, and it was always associated with the citizen. Yeah? Should we go to war with Sparta or not? Right? Uh, that, that's not obvious. It's interesting you put it in, in also the term of it's we're not talking about educating a bunch of little David Axelrods. Well, I said that, yeah, because liberal education. I mean, given that the liberal arts colleges today are so far to the left for the most part, I wanted to make the point that that's not the point, but that the ethos in many liberal arts colleges would like you to think that because the talk is all about diversity, inclusiveness, openness, understanding, uh, social justice, changing things for the better of the future. And, you know, it's in the air, and it's what a certain, you know, the the liberal arts college class believes in, in good faith, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay, but you are saying that there is sort of this bleed going, and there's this shift going on, and you're noticing it in your students, and it is yeah. that maybe uh, to the detriment of liberal education, it is morphing into more of the David Axelrod school. Well, look, I mean, it depends where you are and where you go. Um, I mean, this is a fight that's been going on since the 60s, and my side, the, you know, the old conservative reactionary side, has been losing it all the way, uh, which is should education be indoctrination and making people better and social justice, or should it be you know reading the great books and thinking about the great questions? And so more and more, I think it's uh, sure that 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 it's understood um, that the purpose of colleges is, if not technical, uh, to create people who can you know man the or woman, the person, the uh, elite power stations in the society and have the technical knowledge to do it, but also um, that they should be given um, ideological grounding for what we all know to be right. Um, I think that, sure, that, that, that's, that dominates more and more, and I think that tends to make people... Limited. And well, you now, set up this. It's interesting because you set up this urge um, as sort of almost a quasi-Christian expiation of guilt. Well, I uh, think so. Type yeah. urge, and I wonder whether it's related to that on some level. I think it is. Culturally. Yeah. 
No, I mean, sure, this is a Puritan country, you know, uh, at least part of it, the North is, or was, and I think Puritanism is still, Calvinism is still tremendously powerful, even among people who are, um, consider themselves secular or even atheists. Um, it is a, a, the immediate question that someone like this asks is, what does it say about me that I should think this or that, or that this policy would mean? Am I saved? Am I a good person? And I think with the decline of actual participation in politics, local politics, whatever it is, community politics, it's a natural tendency to think about politics symbolically and ultimately as an expression of who one is morally. And so, uh, sure, I see this in my students all the time. I see it in my colleagues, that uh, I am white, I am male, I am straight, I am privileged, oi, 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 I must expiate that privilege. Um, and that leads them usually to be in favor of policies that actually don't hurt them but hurt other people, because they have the margin of error, they they can live nicely without it, um, but that they don't think about those people very much. Uh, in the name and, of in the name of thinking about them and being guilty about them, they don't think about them. Well, they don't think. Often, I think that's even true about the people they're trying to help. I mean, we, we probably this is not the place for it, but the, you know, the question is: Does reintroducing racial preference? or gender preference, only the opposite way, actually help or actually hurt? And I would make the argument that it's actually done the minorities a huge deal of harm. Well, this is the, this gets us into the, um, the liberal democracy side of, of yeah. the question. And uh, But I wanted to go say in this uh, liberal education sure. side. Sure. And uh, so... Um, when you when you see this this um this quality of your students of of sort of they 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 want to be sort of benevolent rulers but they kind of want to call the shots for the stupid people as it were the ones sure. who who aren't educated and they and they look at it like hey i i, I want to you know i understand i'm privileged i understand and i want to come out with these policies like one where you're talking about maybe affirmative action or other other such policies that or identity that, politics or trigger warnings or right. safe spaces or whatever. All those different things, they feel like they're they're um, expiating their guilt via the... I think so. I've heard students just say it openly in a meeting on Martin Luther King Day. I was on a panel. Uh, I'm white. I'm, I'm privileged. I feel so guilty. What can I do? Hmm. And I and also uh, an African-American professor pretty much said them both, both told them, guilt is deadly. You know, do what you can, but do not do it out of guilt, because the people you feel guilty about, in the end, are the people you're going to hate because they make you feel so bad. <laughs> they can't, but but they can't help but feel it because they've, I mean, they've recognized the history and they've looked at it and they've, you know, it it hasn't been fair to. Yeah, it hasn't been. But here's the question. I mean, I you know, I'm a Jew. My folks came from Germany. I've met Germans always feeling very guilty about the Holocaust. And I tell them, you didn't do it. And it's sick 
for you to be burdened by that. What I want for you to do is treat me like another human being and on equal terms. And then we're fine. I don't blame you for what your grandfather did. And I think the same would work best for all of us. In other words, how do you get over that past history? How do you, can you do it? I think you sent me a question which you said, do it systematically, systemically in view of the system. I think the minute you go beyond saying, you're equal, I'm equal, I'm going to fight for your rights, I expect you to fight for mine, which is a relationship of mutual respect. The minute you start treating people as victims, uh, you start a, a dialectic in which everything goes to hell because they don't know, the minorities don't know, are you condescending to them? Are you doing this out of guilt? Do you really believe this? Do you want them to think better of you? You're doing it, and right. are you, you humiliating think them or are you... they're not looking at you straight because... Right. And I, I, you know, whites and blacks stop on campuses stop being able to talk to each other because nobody can trust what the other guy is saying. Because it's all nicey-nicey, but probably I've heard black students say to me, You're, they're all so nicey-nicey, but probably when they get together, they're racist. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that ain't funny. I mean, I, I, that's horrible. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. But I, I yeah, understand. Yeah, no, you did, and I understand. But, but the distrust comes up. It's, it's and I think yeah. you can't get past the old American model, which is you got rights, I got rights, and from now on, let's see what we can do where we can go. Now, does that mean you can't do anything of a socially meliorative form? No, it doesn't. But it means that that can't be the goal. That's got to be you know, a fringe, an extra to try to help some. But if that becomes the goal, then where you go is identity politics because every identity, every group has to get its claim for its victimization. You get a victimization fetishism. It's a, it's uh, a rabbit hole. of. of, of it's a rabbit stuff. hole. Yeah, look, I mean, do you know what happened at Evergreen State the other day? No. Beautiful example of where this finally goes. Evergreen State, State is in the state of Washington, I think. It's a very progressive college, and for several years there's been a tradition whereby all the black students and all the black faculty leave college for one day, and the point is to teach those other people, those white folks, how important blacks are to the college. But this year they decided to up the ante and change it, and so they said there will be a day when we go to the go to school, but you don't. White people are excluded. Whoa. And one white biology professor wrote a letter saying, no, this isn't right. In one, in one case, you're doing it voluntarily. In the second case, you're engaging in compulsion. He's thinking of the old equal rights model. And he, you know, the police chief told him that he shouldn't come to campus because his life wasn't safe. He got death wow. threats. People told him, you are defending white privilege. Now, that's real interesting. You're defending white privilege because you are not agreeing to be treated the way blacks used to be treated. And only if you accept that and accept that humiliation can we truly say you've overcome white privilege. Well, you know, um, at this point... You know, a, a kind of Trump-like backlash is, is just about inevitable. Well, if you're going to treat us like this, well, screw you. And nobody wins and everybody loses. 
Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of um uh, there's a lot of that going around and and I think what you're talking about here is essentially back to your point of reciprocity is that it yeah. destroys reciprocity Absolutely. to try to reverse manufacture it from some some yeah. poor no, state. That that's the argument. That that's been the argument that you know, people like Sidney Hook were making, uh, an old Marxist philosopher who I used to work for. Um, he, that was the point he was making back in the 70s, and uh, nobody listened. <laughs> but you can see where this ultimately goes. Because the, once you once you um, violate it in any way, even even if you're doing it for the greatest of intentions, you destroy the equilibrium. Uh, well, you create an incentive to push harder. You create right. an incentive of imbalance. This isn't imbalance. good enough, right. right? We need just us leaving. No, you have to leave. Right. And Never know. You, you up the ante because you now privilege becomes a tool. No, sorry. Privilege becomes the currency of the political game. Who gets it? Right. And privilege comes in this game in reverse with victimization. Yeah. So arguments, uh, you can't be a racist unless you're white because only whites have power. Um, and, I mean, it's the same argument you could make in reverse. Right. And people used to make in reverse. Uh, there's there's a, 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 the Apollo, no, the Alamo Theater in Brooklyn, I think, is um, showing uh, Wonder Woman to an all-women audience. And some ornery conservative guy bought a ticket and put on Twitter that he was going to go. And he said, be fine if the Alamo uh, put on a benefit and, and did that, but they, they had it up for sale, so I bought a ticket. And the arguments that are being made are remarkable. They're things like, well, maybe you have a legal right to do this, but why would you go where you're not wanted? That's the argument that used to be used about blacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah? Why would you stick your nose into our private club? Well, because it's not a private club. That's why we passed the Civil Rights Act, for, <laughs> for heaven's sake, right? You, you, you're now completely without guidance, and the only and without principle. Who, yeah, you, who, who yells loudest. Yeah, and, the, and that's the, essentially the power of the principle is, is, is enough, and it should carry you into a future... <laughs> That, the principle that. isn't enough. The political culture that believes in it and supports it. And that is, I believe, what the civil rights movement was about. And I thought that's, that's what I thought at the time, and that's you know, why I supported it. And Martin Luther King says it very clearly in, in the address, uh, the, Washington, uh, Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial Address in Washington. Uh, I don't want a country, I, I want a country where my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their characters. That was the dream of the civil rights movement, that we could get past identity politics and race and all the rest of it. And as soon as we got there, we decided to improve things. And, well, we decided uh, to try to remedy the what what went on before because I mean yeah. there was it was and and my question to you about this whole thing about because you you talk about how maybe it's 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 done harm to to have pursued so. these policies but we now live in I mean our current sense of reciprocity is informed by our being forced to I mean on some level forced. Side by side to be side by side with African Americans. Could you explain that? Because I don't understand what you mean. Well, the the affirmative action is essentially 
was giving privilege was giving um preference to yeah. African Americans and putting them in in the workforce in pr- probably in ways they wouldn't have been put in and um, and you're sure of that you think that equal rights wouldn't have worked well why I, do you think I that? wonder that I wonder if our current um concept is informed by the social engineering that was done. I mean, is that is it, you think well? I think a, I think what it did was undermine reciprocity. I mean, here's the problem: mm. the affirmative action argument is we're a racist country, so that equal rights will not work because of the secret racism that everybody has. So we will impose, or we will encourage, uh, in every way we can, uh, preferential hiring, okay, or admissions. Well, what kind of a country is it? that somehow cannot operate fairly and equally when it comes to minorities, but is still willing to support a policy that's preferential against it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. Yeah? You you can't argue both sides of that. And the why was affirmative action? I, I kept thinking in the 70s, the bad, that white backlash is coming. It didn't come. Why didn't it? because of an enormous and justified feeling of guilt by whites about that history. And if you had that feeling that, that accepted preferential treatment that, that, that did not benefit what was then the majority, uh, then I think probably equal rights would have done just as well. Yes, but it's hard to, I, I probably maybe, but uh, it's hard to at least separate our current, I mean, it just seems okay. like... Okay, but when you say our current mode of reciprocity, our I don't see that at all. What I see is our current mode of negotiating group interests and mostly lying <laughs> to each other. So you're saying essentially we don't have reciprocity precisely yeah. because maybe, and that due in part to this uh, forcing a, a, this this trend against... Yeah, reciprocity, I mean, basically. Reciprocity of whom? Maybe that's what we ought to talk about. We're talking about any group that is a political order or community of some kind. Everybody belongs, but at the same time, they're different. Well, that was not, the first part of it wasn't true, I would say, until 1964, the Civil Rights Act. It, there was still the remnants of the old of Jim Crow and the rest of it. It didn't magically, well, the point is it didn't magically change at 64. It didn't magically change. It took a long, long political struggle, and, and Lyndon Johnson, president from Texas, was very important in getting that passed. Kennedy couldn't get it passed. And the black civil rights movement, uh, which was not simply a black movement, that, that had a lot to do with it. Of course, there was a great social upheaval whose name was the, whose emblem was the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So that became us then. And from then on, the idea was this community will be ruled by the reciprocity of liberal democracy. Now, you can set up different systems, right? You can say, well, it isn't citizen reciprocity anymore. It's not that we're all Americans, but we're going to divide us up again by groups so that some have had too much privilege and some have had too little, and we're going to do this in a way that is really just. What you're doing is breaking up the citizenry 
and turning people from political actors into objects, from subjects into objects. And the idea is when we get there, it'll be all right. (laughs) Justice Blackmun gave a, uh, I forget what the decision was, I forget which one, one of the great affirmative action decisions in which he said, this is pretty awful stuff, I know, but in 25 years we won't have to do it anymore. Just hold still, it'll be okay. (laughs) That changes citizenship from that active competition within the rules to a group competition for privilege that is granted by the state. And that's a very different world. Yes, it's and it's a different model of a human. Uh, it's a, it's a, certainly not the liberal democratic model because you're treating them as, like you said, as as objects. Well, at least in groups, yeah, I think it does. And so every group then has an interest in maximizing its claims, and the real authorities become those who adjudicate those claims. Right, and you and if, unless you join up with one of those groups, you're kind of out in the wilderness because. They're the yeah. ones getting anything. So um. yeah, right. And the whole point of the civil rights movement was to get away from this group business. But what lies behind it was precisely what you keep saying. You know, but come on, come on. We all know that really society was still pretty racist and so forth. And instead of letting that uh, a betting on American assimilation, as, as, as has been in, all, in many, many other cases, we're going to make sure this didn't happen again. And so, by golly, we're going to force it. I mean, if you think about it, um, the racism or the prejudice directed against immigration, groups that immigrated, it's the story of America, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no Irish need apply. Uh, there's prejudice before that against the Germans, of all people. Um I think, who was it, Henry James or somebody, Saul Bellow quoted in his Nobel Prize uh, speech, Henry James looking at the uh, southeastern European, eastern European immigrants getting off the boat, trembling in horror because we all knew their IQs were, uh, you know, subnormal, (laughs) and Bellow (laughs) had some fun with that. Um, So that's an old, old story, and before you know it, you get intermarriage and you get all the rest of it. And by the way, I've seen figures on racial intermarriage that are way higher than they used to be. And jolly good. <laughs> Great. Right. Yeah, I know. But some people would, I mean, it's hard. That's what I'm saying. There's some people who um, who are in favor of all these, uh, of affirmative action, would say that uh, it has helped. And so it's hard to well, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, to know. Yeah, it's, it's hard, hard to, know. to know because you you know you you can only go down one of the the, the, the pant legs of history. Uh, but I believe it does. Point. It's true. I, I conceptually though, I mean, as a principle, it does it does violate its own principle, and that's the. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's helped. I mean, I think I'm willing to say it's probably done something. I mean, for women, I think. All they needed was equal rights, and you know the women of, who were school teachers a generation before run corporations or uh, at least are, are well paid lawyers today um, they're in, in the case of race and ethnicity, I think it might have helped create a middle class quicker, but on the other hand, I think it also crippled people uh, by creating deep distrust that they couldn't believe 
that anybody really took them seriously. And the only way you can really know that is if all bets are off and uh, what they say is probably what they mean and deal with it. So let's talk about this um this from the just in the sense of liberal democracy and why it's done so well in the west but not so much in other places. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, as I said earlier, I think liberal democracy is a product of a whole lot of very strange things coming together. And the place to look more than anywhere else is England, English history. And I, I don't want to give you the Whig theory of history that's kind of out of fashion. But look, you have a country which, first of all, is an island. And that means it doesn't need a standing army. It can handle people with its navy. Secondly, you've got a very strange um, system of nobility in England, whereby the younger son was not noble necessarily. And that meant that there was a lot more room for intermarriage with the non-nobles. You don't have that in Spain. Uh, you've got a commercial society uh, increasingly. Uh, you've got a class that's called the gentry who aren't noble but who aren't exactly common either, the justices of the peace, uh, sort of the, the, the characters in Jane Austen stories, a lot of them. Um, there's a kind, and you've got the, the good fortune to have maybe the most brilliant monarch who ever existed, to my mind, Queen Elizabeth I, who finessed everything and everybody, and somehow got these wild feudal forces to uh, moderate their conflicts. Um, you got the survival of a medieval institution called Parliament, when all of the equivalent institutions in, uh, in Western Europe were being crushed by centralized monarchies. And by the time uh, the monarchs in Britain tried to crush it, it was too late. And it had been redefined by a bunch of lawyers, of, of uh, common law lawyers, to look more and more like a real legislative. And then finally, with Hobbes and Locke, you get a theory of natural rights, which under which complements it, and, uh, and in Locke's formulation requires representative government. Um, there are an awful lot of very unusual historical chances that brought this about. And then you have the English colonization of uh, the, the eastern seaboard uh, of, the, of North America, and people who are kind of used to thinking that way and where it fits and where it fits with local government and all the rest of it, um, there's an awful lot of very strange things had to happen to make this work. And the hostility to it and everything, and of course science and capitalism and industry and all of that go with it because that's the property side that, that makes people agree to it. Um, and that's, of course, what makes it, it pushes it universally is because that's, that becomes modernity. That becomes the high tech. That becomes the military technology that everybody needs to have if they don't want to become a colony. Um, so, but the reaction against it in the world uh, it has been steadfast and powerful. Sometimes the reaction is really obvious, and I would say 
you know, fascism was a perfect example of a kind of loathing of liberal democracy and all the what Schumpeter calls creative destruction that's involved in it. Yeah, that uh, uh, you know, w- women uh, are now liberated; they're in the workforce. Uh, things aren't the, you know, the people are sneering at the old-time religion and all the rest of it. Um, you have these powerful reactionary movements, and I would say uh, Islamism is a contemporary version. Of or how about Trumpism? <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go there right yet, but but I don't think that's simply wrong. Yeah, I mean, some of the effects of capitalism in this country now are proving to be, you know, globalism are proving to be pretty uh, difficult for some of the folks around where I live, and. I can see in that already a kind of demoralized, we've got to find some strong person who will stand up against this somehow and bring back the jobs to the coal miners. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's the same, but I'd say there are signs of it, sure. And I'm sorry, you, you were saying? No, go ahead, go ahead. And um, the other way of doing it is to say, okay, we'll beat them at their own game, we'll be hyper, hyper modern, and we'll still somehow be ourselves. And I would say that's what the communists tried to do in Russia and in China, was to get past liberal modernity to something much, much better that would still show the West uh, we can beat them at their own game. The only people who seem to have managed it are the Japanese. Um, Well, they have a very interesting hybrid, don't they? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And, you know, from what little I know about Japanese history, they have opened wide and swallowed Chinese culture in the 6th century without ever stopping to be Japanese. And they did that with the West in the 19th and 20th century without ever stopping to be Japanese. And, I mean, that's a remarkable story, and I don't claim to understand it. But typically, um, it, it goes to very extreme and violent ends and doesn't end well. Yeah, and it tends to it, it tends to work in places where they have sort of uh, deified reason on some level, but in well, other places, yeah, and it's different than the French Revolution and the English Revolution, right? Is that, is that what Gerber it was? Himmelfarb wrote a fine book about that, um, where you deify logic and reason. That's the progressive side, and then you deify unreason and tradition uh, on the reactionary side. But either way, reason is seen as uh, modern, scientific, enlightened, and voracious. You know, it'll eat up the traditional world. And that's why another reason, coming back to people like Aristotle, they had a different view of reason. It was not applied science to make the world, to overcome nature, as Bacon says, to put nature to the question, which means torture it. Uh, it was there to accommodate, to understand what's going on, and to try to fit into it. Uh, it's an older view of reason, but you know, the modern view of reason, everything goes with it, including liberal democracy and science and industry and all the rest of it, um, is voracious. It is creative destruction, and it is no wonder that it runs into so much resistance. So we're seeing now that it, it's we're seeing on both sides essentially that of, of the political spectrum we have one side on the liberal side that seems to be going from this idea of reciprocity to an idea uh, uh, this multicultural interest groups model yeah. uh, and then you have on the on the right this kind of move towards authoritarian kind of a populism 
Although, you know, there's populism on both sides. What you're saying, on the one hand, you have maybe a kind of uh, authoritarian bunch on the right, and on the left, you have the bureaucratic state. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I worry about that. And then, you, you, you left out, are the libertarians. And in an odd way, the libertarians contribute to the problem in opposing it because the answer can't be, you know, me, uh, I, I got my rights to hell with you. You can't stand up against either a bureaucracy or a populist movement that way. Right, because you'll never be uh, The only solution together. is a political one, right. which isn't simply libertarian and isn't one of the others. But yes, I do worry about that. I think you, you're right to worry about it. But it seems um, like ultimately this is a function of our, our the, the fact that this is a corporate kind of run system now. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you... Yeah. We talked about um, this, the, the the change of the sense of liberal democracy or liberal education, and it seems to me that when you look at the corporate kind of charter about how to deal with these issues, that's how they deal with it. Very, very relativistically, very kind of. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. Um, what you're calling corporatism is greater, you know, greater and greater institutions fewer and fewer mediating institutions, everything happening top-down. And it can be in the private sphere, and we call it capitalism, or we can be in the public sphere, and we call it socialism. The reason that Schumpeter thought that socialism would beat capitalism is not it was economically superior, but that capitalism develops towards socialism. If you have General Motors, you might as well have U.S. Motors. Right. And... In both cases, one, one you're, you're looking together. at a yeah. So, what's the solution? I I mean, the solution, very little that's practical. But I would say, the guy I would go to is Alexis de Tocqueville, and Tocqueville sees the enormous importance in America of local action, of people getting together and doing solving their problems together, and that brings them out of that horrible privacy, what he calls individualism, which isn't rugged at all but very weak, and makes them become a force in the community. Um, that's what Robert Putnam, who's a big liberal, wrote of his book Bowling Alone about, that the breakdown of civil society in that way. Another book written by a conservative, Yuval Levin, on the fractured republic, takes a Tocquevillian view of that. If you could Again, build up, and that would mean creating a lot, pushing the federal government to allow the devolving of power into to states, but also to localities. Uh, that might do some good, I think, in, in opposing the, the corporatist model. Another way of talking about it is entrepreneurial, small business capitalism as opposed to the big um, the big corporations uh things but you know everything tends to go in that direction because we're thinking in corporatist top-down terms so for instance um you know however whatever happens to the medical issue when you put as uh, the american uh, health care act did um the responsibility on employers to do this, to do that, to fill out a ton of paperwork and all that, you begin to discourage the creation of small business. 
uh, it's rational, it's sensible, at least to the people who are designing. Well, that's, that's a perfect the, the, example of what you're talking about in the sense that they, they don't even, it's not affecting them, they're making it for others. Yeah. And in an abstract kind of way, well, we want to make sure that all the loopholes right. are plugged, but that creates the one stagnation. Size, one size fits all model that doesn't necessarily. Yeah. And it creates stagnation and lack of innovation and sure. all the rest of it. So, what you would need ultimately is in the public and above all in the elite some sense that the problem solving method doesn't work so well. I always think of, I tell my students it's a question of thinking ecologically. When it comes to nature, people understand that we're, we have to be green, that there, there are mosquitoes, so you, you, you blow away them away with DDT, that's nice, but then the eagles die. Things are connected in very complex ways, and here's a hammer, here's a nail, or the, the, old, the old saying is for, for a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't get you where you really want to go. It may solve the immediate problem, but the regime question, the deeper question, what does it do to the people, what does it do to the society, you haven't even thought about that. Well, it just seems like we've, you know, our, it's such a, like you were saying, that this, this reciprocity and liberal democracies in, in and of themselves are very fragile things that I think so. everybody has to be kind of on the same page. And the minute there's a, a, a force of people who maybe don't like it too much, they're going to pull it in that direction. Nope. I, I don't agree with that because liberal democracy is fragile in some ways and extremely tough in others. And the way it has dealt with anti-democratic folks or anti-liberal democratic folks in the past is to tolerate them. Yeah. Um, the minute you do that, they they fall into the trap of, and you, they get co-opted. That, that it's very good at that. But when the folks who are who think they're liberal Democrats forget what it is they're doing, that's when you have the real problem. Right, but it's very easy to, um, as we're seeing, I mean, politically, like divide people among these with these very stupid issues. And I feel like that. They yeah, lose- but we've been we've been digging that pit, I think, for a long, long time. And it's amazing to me we it hasn't grown deeper than it has already. But it's, the reason it's grown deeper, I think, is because neither side wants to deal with the fundamentals of the economic structure that they're in favor of. I mean, they, they like it that the rich are getting richer. So they they want us to talk about <laughs> all these oh, other things. Oh, I see things, what you're saying. Um, constantly. And it's just well, like... I mean, this is the problem of the, the old Lockean property business. If you don't have virtue, you have everybody pursuing property. And that's why I said early on, that's not good enough. You need virtue of some kind. You need liberal edu- liberally educated people. And sure, I mean, I, I spent a year at a conservative think tank, the Hoover Institution, out in, in many, many years ago. And, uh, you know... The, the free market folks there, they had a hard time understanding that if the, you know, the free market folks were doing well, why wouldn't the other people want to be socialists and get their share politically? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if wealth is the standard, then socialists and, and, and capitalists only are disagreeing about distribution of it. Um, I mean, maybe this would be a good line to put in there. There's a Bertrand de Juvenal uh, wrote an essay on capitalism, socialism, 
and I forget what the third one was. Maybe it was also democracy. Um, and he cites an Armenian proverb, the world is a pot and man is a spoon in it. And he says, well, in capitalism you have different sized spoons and maybe an expanding pot. In socialism you have a static and possibly a shrinking pot, but you've got equal spoons. And then he says, but what if man is not a before what if the world is not a pot and man is not a spoon? Uh, you know, uh, so I agree that that if it, that that if you're simply talking economics and you, you simply operate by the lock-in model, the Marxist model is an obvious response to it. But they're both inadequate, I think. Yeah, they are. Uh, it just seems to me that there's a there's an elite on both sides that yeah that are are I mean they they are playing their constituents on some level and it's not it's not I don't even know that it's as cynical as that I think you know true believers on all sides with a big dose of self-interest involved but, you know I mean, it's the human situation uh, what we believe and what we uh, what advantages us tends to overlap pretty heavily I'm sorry well I mean you're saying? I, I, I think that the reason why um, there's this um, Mistrust. Uh, this is, I think, why we had the current election we had, and we had a guy come in with, who was sort of threatening to blow it all up. And yeah. why, why was, why were on both sides people kind of wanting that? Good and, question. Yeah, I mean the Sanders folks as well. There, there's a real sense that I think has accumulated since the '08, actually, really since 9/11 or the, the Iraq War started, of decay. I think it started with NAFTA. Started with what? Na- after NAFTA. Yeah, I mean, of course, you can take it back a long way, but I, okay, maybe. Um, I, I don't think NAFTA has been a bad thing at all, but but. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it, who knows? I mean, I'm just. But I, I don't know enough about it. I just heard uh, uh, somebody at a, on a panel at Kenyon uh, defend NAFTA from the left, um, saying that it's you know it's shows that the United States is a great place to build autos for the world. Um, but however that may be, um, I think there's been a sense for a long time now that things aren't working. You know, we go to wars and we don't win them. Um, there's terrorism and that that's demoralizing. Uh, there's uh, the sense that the race issue is back in a big way with us again. Um uh, there's a you know the the, the well, weakening of the economic, American working economic class, decline, the opioid right? epidemic, and I think there's a general sense of demoralization that that's just crept in for a long time, and the causes of it are manifold, but we haven't shown any capacity to deal with it, to deal with any of it. But you don't trace it back to the. The, I mean, the kind of Reagan Reagan uh, revolution of, of no. economics. Because no, I, mean, I don't. Because well, okay, make the case. Well, I would just say that you had a you had a, a really strong growing middle class up until around the 1980s, and then it started to decline. So I mean, I don't. Well, I, that's I mean, why I, I, I was alive then, and I may tell you, uh, the mood in the under Carter in the late 70s was rather similar to what it is today. Well, Carter and, was also a neoliberal. I mean, he was very... Uh, he, yeah, he, he was a neoliberal. Um, but what do you expect? This is America. I mean, you, you know, Johnson wasn't. 
But I mean, um, we saw it's just that we we went from a a tax a top tax rate of, of like seventy percent to twenty or thirty yeah. um, in a very it was a very kind of violent turn of a different yeah. sort. I mean, and yeah. so I mean that that's a long argument. I don't agree with you about that, but I don't really know enough about it. But I'm I'm pretty sure no, uh, we actually had a boom in the we 80s. had a bubble. Well, it wasn't really a bubble. I mean, we we, we prospered under under Clinton very, yeah, very nicely. Bubble. Well, bubble. you know, um, I mean, some say that the, it's a boom. Hard to know what the baseline a, is. We've had a boom bust economy since the Reagan Revolution. No, we've had a boom bust economy since what eighteen twenty or when was the first <laughs> big bust? So you're saying that's just the way it I is? I think we've we've since the New Deal, we've limited the power of the busts. But uh, we, you know, we were not in particularly good shape in the late 70s. If you, you want to see a movie about it, maybe the best anti-American movie ever made by an American, Robert Altman, Nashville, and you get some of the mood of that uh, mm. kind of desperate, demoralized mood. There's a song in there. We must be doing something right to last 200 years. So what is this nostalgia then of making America great again? What is what is that based on? Oh, that. I mean. That usually comes on the right in you know a fantasy about the good old days and how everything was fine and people uh, were respectful to the to their parents. I and mean, all but of people that. could work. I mean, they could have a woman working, staying home, and a guy working, and and they would put their kid through college. And now they can't do that. Um, not that many put their kid through college. Uh, the numbers but, are much higher. I see. Um, yeah. I mean, look. I, I don't want to deny that. Things happened in the 80s that have had effects down the road. But what I remember of them is that it was actually not such a great time for corporations and a pretty good time for entrepreneurial types. Um, I, I remember you know, being told in the late 70s that decline was inevitable because uh, our workforce would always uh, be out undercut by uh, foreign work sources, um, and so, you know, unless we put up tariff barriers, a la, a la Sanders, which would be bad for everybody, would be rerun, rerunning the 1920s before the crash, um, you know, we just would have to accept a lower standard of living, and that was the argument of uh, the, Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. And I think, you know, you, I don't think you were there, but the gloom and the pessimism and the belief that we're just going straight down, uh, that that was well Carter yeah Carter was, that, that, he was a that very gloomy was president <laughs> uh, and I think it it wasn't until 08 that we that, that 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 it fell apart and everybody expected a fairly rapid recovery and we didn't get it now why we didn't get it yeah, that, okay. we leave the economists to talk about that I don't know but I you know there are all kinds of factors you can point to but I think that intensified the feeling of hey, what the hell, the American dream isn't working, my kids are not going to be better off than I am. And that, then people start turning to saviors. In, 19, in 2008, Obama, the savior was uh, a very cool Ivy League kind of guy uh, who promised that the tides would stop rising. Mm -hmm. um, and it was compared to Lincoln and given Nobel Prizes since he became president. <laughs> and that, that was ridiculous, I thought. Too. Well, yeah, okay. But it's a sign of a kind of desperation, and now with Trump, it, it's even more obvious. But it has to do with the 
the the economic disparity, and that's the thing is like it has to do well. Even that, I'm not sure about. Um, to what extent it's disparity, and to what extent it's the lack of prospects for people individually and their families. Right on the lower spectrum. On the lower spectrum, yeah, that's. It's not the same. I mean, historically, Americans have not had a big problem with other people getting rich if they thought they were going to do better themselves. Um, right. They wouldn't even I, care about it's, income it's when you, when you Right. When you think that you're stuck in a rut and you see all these other people, you know, the 1% or whatever doing so well, that's when that's when people start getting very unhappy. Well, that's another statistic, too, is that we've seen since the 1980s a a, 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 a much larger accumulation, whereas the top 1%, their wealth has gone up like 250%, whereas the yeah. and and the middle class have basically stayed the same. Yeah. yeah. So, look, I mean, again, you can look at a lot of the arguments. Is it capitalism is it the, the, you know is it the globalization is it the world economy is it uh, possibly uh, regulatory uh, infringement on the possibilities of, of innovation capital development I don't know but it's it's not a good so we see that I think there was a, a Princeton University study that showed that basically all the legislation that has gotten passed in the last um, 10, 15 years has been what the upper echelon wants. Are we actually living in a liberal democracy or are we living in a, a um, an aristocracy of money that pretends well, to be? Well, I mean, is an aristocracy of money or an aristocracy of education? Uh, I think what, you know, Harvey Mansfield once wrote an essay in which he said there are two aristocracies in this country the aristocracy of wealth and the aristocracy of the word. And what I, I, I've seen since he wrote that is a kind of merging of the two. If you think Silicon Valley, right. um, and you know the, the politics in Silicon Valley are, are very liberal, as we say. Sure. Um, Socially. But, <laughs> but, yeah. But They're not Marxists. <laughs> well, no, but they support progressive causes. So, you know. Uh, but they don't support. It's a very the, strange business, yeah. and when, very when you, capitalist. So, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I'm not sure that you're simply saying an aristocracy of money, because uh, the folks in the media—they're not the one percent. They're maybe the fifteen percent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Kenyan grads, right? Not even the Harvard grads who are going to Goldman Sachs. The Kenyan grads who are going to do rather well, but uh, probably identify, you know, against the very rich. Uh, they too are part of that elite, and they're part of the elite of words and ideas and policy. And it's not simply a matter of wealth, nor are they simply doing the bidding of the wealthy. Um, but it's yeah, if you modify it that way, I'd say, yeah, I'm concerned whether liberal democracy can really survive uh, for very much longer, yeah, given given the tendencies. And, you know, people always tell me, and they're right, uh, Adam Smith, there is much ruin in the nation. Anyway, America, you should never, never, never bet short on America. 
Uh, okay, fine. I, I sure hope so. We will see, and I want to thank you for coming on the show and thank everybody for listening. Uh, this is Socratic Dialogues, and we'll be back soon with another show. Thanks. The average person spends hours a week at the grocery store, but you're not an average person, are you? There's a better way to get fresh groceries, and it's called Fresh Direct. Shop for just-picked fruit and vegetables, custom-cut meat and seafood, freshly made meals and meal kits, all your favorite brands, plus hundreds of weekly deals. Order Fresh Direct anytime, anywhere, and get the freshest groceries delivered to your door. Use code PLAYLIST to get $25 off your first order of $99 or more. Visit FreshDirect.com or download the app today. Today. The average person spends hours a week at the grocery store, but you're not an average person, are you? There's a better way to get fresh groceries, and it's called Fresh Direct. Shop for just-picked fruit and vegetables, custom-cut meat and seafood, freshly made meals and meal kits, all your favorite brands, plus hundreds of weekly deals. Order Fresh Direct anytime, anywhere, and get the freshest groceries delivered to your door. Use code PLAYLIST to get $25 off your first order of $99 or more. Visit FreshDirect.com or download the app today. Day. The average person spends hours a week at the grocery store, but you're not an average person, are you? There's a better way to get fresh groceries, and it's called Fresh Direct. Shop for just-picked fruit and vegetables, custom-cut meat and seafood, freshly made meals and meal kits, all your favorite brands, plus hundreds of weekly deals. Order Fresh Direct anytime, anywhere, and get the freshest groceries delivered to your door. Use code PLAYLIST to get $25 off your first order of $99 or more. Visit FreshDirect.com or download the app today.